Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. This is a little bit of the intro before the intro. And today I've got on the podcast Dr. Chris Morrissey. And we're talking about three kind of health uh, procedure things that I think as a human being walking around, and especially as a trainer or a coach, uh, you should know more about. And Dr. Chris is the person who has done some of these procedures. He's also working in fitness, so he is the perfect guy, in my opinion, to blend these two areas. Uh, One of them is going to be talking about the exciting topic of colonoscopies. And before you completely tune out of this episode right now, uh, something he brings up that I was completely unaware of is you may even need a colonoscopy as young as 30 or 35 uh, if you have certain conditions. So listen to this podcast. I think you'll find it um, useful and, again, could definitely extend your health, which is going to allow you to train more and just generally live a better life. If you're looking for things past exercise and nutrition and recovery to what is the next level of things you can do to extend your longevity based on uh, science and be more robust, increase your recoverability. If recoverability is a word, uh, check out the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Go to physiologicflexibility.com. If you're listening to this now in March, it will open again for one week starting around April 4th, 2022. Uh, So that would be your next opportunity uh, to get in on the next enrollment. And if you're listening outside of that time, you can still go to physiologicflexibility.com, get on the wait list. We'll have lots of information there in the meantime, and you'll be the first to be notified once it opens again. Um, In it, we focus on everything from uh, cold Therapy, hot, such as sauna, how to alter pH, which looks like uh, some low-intensity interval work or some very high-intensity intervals. There's a specific way to do that. Breathing techniques, uh, even things like fuel systems, ketones to glucose, and especially oxygen and CO2. Should you be doing specific breathing techniques both at rest in terms of a meditation session um, or during exercise? So nasal versus mouth breathing, uh, etc. So go to physiologicflexibility.com for all the information and enjoy this episode with Dr. Chris Morrissey. Hey, welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and I'm here today with our special guest, Dr. Chris Morrissey. Say hello. How you doing? Good. I like your shirt for people who might not be watching us on video. What does Uh, it say? It says, drink coffee, run hard, eat tacos. Yeah, that, that sounds like <laughs> metabolic flexibility to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> that it is. I got it from, uh, so I do the garage gym athlete training, and one of the guys does the merch for it, and his name's Trampus, and he has his own little company. It's called, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. But anyway, um, he's got a bunch of different t-shirts that we can buy through the website, so I bought some of those from him. So this was oh. one of the ones, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So very cool. <laughs> and today we're talking about kind of three medical thingies, for lack of a technical term, uh, sure. people should know about. 
And obviously, okay. this is not to be prescriptive in any way. There's no doctor-patient relationship. This is just uh, you're going to provide us with some cool research and things that if people are listening should take to their doctor, just kind of an outline of even preventative uh, schedules. Like one of the items will be colonoscopy, which I've been avoiding, which I need to do. So maybe <laughs> yeah. we can give people a kick in the butt of why they should do these things. Or if they have clients, I think it's also good because fitness professionals interact probably more with their clients than their physician does for better or worse, you know, to at right. least be like, Hey, Bob, you're 65. You've never had a colonoscopy. You should talk to your doctor and go get one. And, you know, hopefully just kind of prod them nicely a little bit more in that direction. Sure. Um, Cause even the amount of, I always blame it on guys cause it's typically more guys than women, but <clears throat> the amount of guys who I work with who I'm like, Hey man, when's the last time you had blood work? They're like, uh, five years ago. I'm like, right. You should probably get that done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So give us a little <laughs> bit of your, your background. Sure. <clears throat> so like he said, my name is Chris Morsey. I'm actually a general surgeon, um, by training. Uh, I've lived down in Winfield, Kansas. Um, I've been here since July of 2012. So almost 10 years now. Um, I went to medical school in Kansas city at the it's changed names like three times, but it's the uh, osteopathic medical school there. It's now it's called KCU, Kansas City University. So I was there for actually five years. Um, so the first two years of medical school is all in the classroom. And then the next two years are out on rotations doing different, you know, rotating through different specialties, internal medicine, family medicine, surgery and all that. And I took a year off um, and did an undergraduate um osteopathic medical or osteopathic manipulation fellowship. So in DO school, we all learn manipulation. So kind of the chiropractic stuff that makes DOs separate from MDs. So I took an extra year just getting extra training in that because I really liked it and it helped a lot of people. So, so I did medical school for five years and then we moved up to Grand Blank, Michigan um, from Kansas. And I was there for five years doing my general surgical training. Um, so we were about 10 minutes south of Flint and about an hour west of Detroit. Mm, so fun uh, place. Yeah, I always said between the, <laughs> the armpit and the butthole in Michigan, because right. terrible towns. But anyway, so I trained there for five years and I got this job right out of residency and then came down here. Um, town's about 10,000 people. So there's me and one other general surgeon here and I'm hospital employed. Um, so I get paid the same whether I work or whether I don't. But um, I helped open our wound center. So I've been the wound center medical director since 2014. Um, I also moonlight in the emergency room most Monday nights. So I, I'll work a 12 hour shift in there, just a dock in the box type of thing. Um, I'm also the trauma medical director. Um, we're a small like level four trauma center, which basically means that we stabilize and send people out, um, if need be. Um, and then I also, I'm the medical director of our medical uh, med spa here in town. So I do, uh, cosmetic and therapeutic Botox and filler and PRP injections and sclerotherapy. So I do a little bit of everything. Um, but you know, as far as general surgery goes, bread and butter stuff, I do gallbladder appendix, bowel resections, a lot of colonoscopies, a lot of upper scopes, um, you know, hernia repairs, just kind of whatever comes in. We, you know, as, as long as we feel we can deal with it. And if it's not, we send it to a tertiary care facility, which is like, we have two level one trauma centers about an hour up the road in Wichita. So, um, so that's kind of what we do, but nice. So you don't really do anything to sit around on your hands yeah. all day and yep. just, you know, just watch you. <laughs> watch YouTube and I don't do nothing at all. So yeah. Um, yeah. But then the last couple of years I've gotten into, uh, I'm also currently doing a functional medicine fellowship um, through the Institute of Functional Medicine online. So nice. um, I just kind of fell into this 
type of thing. And the main reason I was really attracted to it is because I'll have usually younger women that come in with nausea, vomiting, bloating, abdominal pain, and I'll work up their gallbladder. If it sounds like their gallbladder, I'll take it out. If it's not, you know, I'll scope them. And then if it's nothing, then I send them on their way to somebody else. But then it's just like, I'm getting so many of these people. And I was like, there's got to be something I'm missing, something else that I can do. And so I've been learning way more about you know, the gut microbiome. And so I've been doing some modules. I hopefully be done my fellowship next year so I can kind of institute that. And I've kind of, I kind of dabble in it now. I mean, there's a lot of that I don't know yet, but, um, you know, basically the, their pillars, which is something you kind of somewhat preach in your Mm -hmm. classes too, about, you know, sleep, nutrition, exercise, which is something that physicians learn zero about in medical school. Um, at least the allopathic and osteopathic physicians, um, you know, the naturopaths and, you know, the Indies or the chiropractors, they learn more about that than we do. But um, I'm just learning how it's everything is so intertwined and that you can fix a lot of diseases just with good food and exercise, you know, and so I've been doing that. And then I got personal training certification during COVID because I was bored. So I've got that (laughs) and uh, trying to get that up and going too. And, um, you know, uh, that's that's kind of about it. So I've just kind of really taken a turn to get into medical fitness and I'm just trying to get in any avenue that I can to, you know, maybe augment a side hustle and, or help my regular patients if they're interested. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I had this question on Instagram the other day too. I posted some stuff about longevity Yeah, and one of the guys commented, which is a good comment. He's like, well, why do most physicians never talk about this? And it was, you know, stuff like aerobic base, you know, body, you know, muscle mass, especially lower body strength and then grip strength. And my comment was, and I'd love to get your comments, is that when I was doing my PhD at the University of Minnesota, like a lot of the anatomy and physiology classes we took were through the med school. So my minor was in anatomy and physiology. So we got to use their gross anatomy labs and stuff. <clears throat> so a lot of times we're hanging out with, you know, the, I don't know, was it third year med students or second year or whatever. Right. And it was interesting just talking to them about like what they take. And, you know, you go take your advanced, you know, AMP, anatomy, physiology, and et cetera. But a lot of it was like hardcore, like pharmacology. Oh, yeah. Like after that, there, I was like really shocked because I always ask physicians, I'm like, well, like how much training did you ever get on just nutrition and exercise? Not off on your own. Cause there's a lot of, you know, docs like yourself who do a lot of that on their own, who are very well educated in it. And it's usually like, like an hour and a half, two hours. And I'm like what? Like out of the entire med school, you get like a couple hours and they're like, yeah, that's just, you know, what diet not to put the diabetic on when you put them in the hospital and, you know, basic stuff. So we just don't kill someone and tell them to do the wrong thing, which I don't know. I just love your comments on that because it, it seems so backwards. And I know like physicians are in a hard spot because they get like 15 minutes per patient and like, you know, bigger cities and stuff. So it's, they don't really have a lot of time to talk to them about, Hey Bob, you should think about exercise. But it just seems like it's very backwards. Yeah, no, I'll echo exactly. That's pretty much spot on what uh, we learned too. You know, I don't remember exactly, you know, the the hours, but it, you could count it on one hand of that. I mean, it's just, we get so much crammed down our throats on, you know, draw out the Krebs cycle, draw, you know, all the, you know, interleukin pathways and arachidonic <laughs> acid cycles, all these like biochemical things that we have to learn, plus all the pharmacology. And so like, the way my school was set up is we had a systems-based approach. So um, we did the first six weeks was kind of just like a hodgepodge of things that didn't really fit in anywhere, just kind of intro stuff. And then our second module was musculoskeletal. So we learned everything. So we learned all the anatomy and physiology of all the muscles in the body and then pharmacology, 
um, biochemistry. So everything about that. Then we took a series of tests like uh, anatomy, practical, pathology, practical, and then um, just different medications and stuff, you know, pharmacology and histology. And then we would take tests and then we move on. The next one we did was like um, skin, blood and lymph. So we had two weeks for like leukemia, lymphoma, all that. And then like two weeks of derm. And then two weeks of like blood dyscrasias and all these different disorders, which was <laughs> a lot of information. Um, and then we went on to cardiac and then respiratory and then GI. So that was our first year. Our second year was neurology, like all the neuroanatomy, which is like a 10 week course, which was a ton. And then we got into more like renal and then like, uh, like endocrine, um, OBGYN type stuff. So, but as far as all that goes, yeah, I would say we maybe had one basics on nutrition and it wasn't even anything about, you know, okay, how many kilocalories are in a, you know, fat, carbs, alcohol, and <laughs> protein. And that was pretty much it. We learned nothing about different diets. Exercise was just like, yeah, you should, you know, get, get up, walk or run maybe 100, 150 minutes a week, um, but nothing on any type of training, nothing about we did some functional assessments, but it was more osteopathic, like, you know, mm. finding tissue texture changes and then doing the manipulation, you know, the crack and backs and necks and different modalities to alleviate pain, um, which, so that was probably the most functional like assessments that we got. And we did like range of motion stuff and joint testing of all the ligaments and tendons and stuff like that. Um, but we got zero, zero education on sleep. Um, you know, I learned so much from just reading, uh, Matt Walker's book, why we sleep, mm -hmm. um, tons of stuff that I didn't even know about that. I learned when I read that like two years ago. So yeah, we just get very little training, which is sad. You know, if, if you look at it from the functional medicine hat, you know, like we're really good at acute disease, you know, strokes, heart attacks, surgery, whatever. But as far as preventative health, we kind of suck at, unless we take special interest in it, just cause we're not trained in it, which is whether that's right or wrong. I don't know. I feel it is kind of wrong because most people will go to their family doc and be like, well, Hey, you know, what can I do? You know, my shoulder hurts. I'm trying to do these CrossFit workouts. What can I do? It's like, well, quit working out for six weeks. You know, it's the standard answer or here's some you know, <laughs> yeah. ibuprofen Tylenol. They don't go, hey, let's go to physical therapy or, Hey, instead of doing snatches, let's work on, you know, whatever. So give you a different course instead of just avoid what you're doing and, or just like, yeah, I don't deal with that. You know, go talk to somebody else. So, and not all doctors are like that. I'm not trying to bash yeah, yeah. by any means, but in the standard training, that's what we get, which really kind of sucks. So. So if someone is like <clears throat> most of this audience will be interested in preventative health and obviously they're doing a lot of stuff on their own, but is there sort of one person or sort of one training you would recommend people go to if they want to do more for lack of a better umbrella term preventive health because i agree it seems in the u.s most docs are just not trained in it and right. i you know if i'm in a massive car accident yes take me to the best you know er center you can find if i get hit on the head then yeah do whatever you need to do and most of the time the places are going to be pretty good at that but it's like eh, i got some blood work that's kind of weird they're like you know, the last in-person physical I had was a doctor who looked like he could, he, he was like 10 years past retirement. Like he mm -hmm. barely kind of made it into the room and I'm asking him, I'm like, Hey man, can I just do like a basic blood work? This is back when I worked for a medical device company. So it's shit long time ago. And right. so I had insurance and he's like, ah, it's one in the afternoon. You're not fasted. I said, no, I didn't eat anything this morning. Cause I knew I was coming in here. I wanted to have blood work done. He's like, are you sure you didn't eat? I'm like, yes, I'm sure I didn't eat <laughs> this morning. And it took me, you know, several minutes arguing with him. And finally, he's like, okay, 
And I'm like, well, can you look at a vitamin D level too? Like 25 hydroxy? He's like, oh, you're fine. I'm like, I don't travel. I live in Minnesota. It's February. <laughs> I think I might be low. And I know that right. if you suspect that it's low, hell, my insurance will even pay for it. He's like, I don't know. And he like pokes on me a little bit. Yeah. What are you? Uh, you're not quite 40 yet. Wear your seatbelt. You're fine. <laughs> I'm like, that's my physical. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's horrible. <clears throat> Most places are not quite that bad. Right. Um, but if someone wants to go in for more preventative health, is there any place you would recommend or things they can do? I know it's like um, a super loaded question. Oh, kind of. I mean, like you'll just kind of have to seek out, you know, I would always start with your family doc, you know, yeah, and then maybe word of mouth. Like if you go to a gym, you know, just like, mm -hmm. Hey, will you guys go see for whatever, um, kind of a specialty is integrative medicine, which is sort of in the functional medicine side. It's kind of more of a global health, you know, in, in theory, family practice is supposed to be kind of like that. But again, it's more of not quite as arbitrary as what you had done to you from that person, but usually it's just, you know, history and physical and they'll, you know, check basic blood work, but they usually don't get out there and check other like vitamin levels and stuff like that. Um, there's more things popping up now, like different companies that have like apps. Um, there's one that I did, I think it's called inside tracker, yeah. um, which They've I've done that before just on yeah. my own. And, uh, they, the only pain in the ass is just going to get your blood work done blood by somebody taken, else, yeah. <laughs> you know? but otherwise it's, it's kind of cool. And they give you good, it seems to be good quality, like levels and tests or whatever, but I mean, it's kind of word of mouth or finding some sort of, you know, functional medicine practitioner. If you can find one of those, those are kind of more of the type that you're inquiring about, mm -hmm. um, or the medical fitness network, you know, which I recently joined, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, yeah. they I didn't know lists. that was a thing either. I've just heard rumblings about it. Yeah. I actually heard about it in the, uh, the ISSN podcast and I re reached out to this lady and I'm actually starting to kind of do stuff with them. I haven't really cool. done much yet, but I was really excited hearing about that because they have CMEs and they have all kinds of things, but you can look up practitioners in your area that do medical fitness. Cause actually I was interviewed on the garage gym athlete podcast once. And they had asked, you know, about, well, who can we go to? How can we find a doctor that's interested in things like you are? And I was like, I don't know if there is a, you know, it's just word of mouth. I have no idea. But then I found yeah. out about the medical fitness network and I was like, this is probably a place to start, but yeah, I'd always start locally with your family doc and then try to find, you know, <clears throat> you can go on that route. I mean, as long as I'm not recommending you go off on your own and rogue do vitamin testing and just yeah. on your own, you know, that's not good doctorly advice, but if you're fairly healthy and you've been examined by a physician and you're healthy, you just want to know more about your, you know, deeper dive into nutrition and stuff like that. I would probably seek out either functional medicine practitioner or integrative medicine or, um, you know, naturopathic physicians, you know, they're in these, not MDs, but they get like 400 hours of nutrition and, things like that. They're considered like holistic medicine, which is sort of an umbrella term for vagueness. That's not, I don't know, you know, the, the regular like allopathic physicians and osteopathic physicians, they kind of look at it as out there kind of things yeah. just because it's under the term holistic, but there's a lot of good practitioners that do that stuff. So, um, that's probably what I would do. Um, I've never personally sought, sought out somebody like that. I just kind of do stuff on my own. Cause I don't know, I'm a doctor. I can do what I want, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. That's kind of a roundabout answer, but that's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful because that's a question I get a lot. And my kind of go-to answer is initially just a little bit similar to you. I'm like, just, you know, even with my own clients, it's like, okay, go to your doc. Here's the test, you know, that you should recommend if your doctor needs a, a shit ton of research on it, I can send you with a whole bunch of PDFs to give him or her to, to read most of the time they'll just look at it and go, okay, yeah, whatever, 
and then right. run it. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll even look at what their blood work is. I have another guy who is a MD PhD that looks over stuff too. Again, not trying to diagnose or prescribe anything, but right. to me, it's just an extra level of data and a snapshot to look and see what's going mm-hmm. on. And then at least you can go back to their doc and be like, Hey, next time you go in, like ask them, uh, we have one person, like their red blood cell count was just super high, you know? And I said it to my MD buddy who I have on retainer. And I'm like, I just sent him, I didn't tell him anything about it. I'm like, what do you think's up with this? He's like, is she a cyclist on EPO? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, no. And it turns out long story short, she had massive sleep apnea. So she's getting so hypoxic at night Interesting. that her red blood cell mass is going up because her body is like, oh, shit, we don't have enough oxygen to get around. Sure. So let's try to fix this by, you know, bumping up red blood cell mass to try to compensate and get oxygen to the tissue. Wow. Um, which is wild. I, I, I told her, I'm like, go back to your doc and ask, you know, her about why this is high. And it just didn't do anything. So we ended up uh, sending her for a sleep consult. They're like, oh, yeah, I have massive sleep apnea. And then the ironic part of the whole story is that um, she ended up not needing my services anymore because she had to pay several thousand dollars to have her, basically her jaw realigned in her teeth because her tongue is falling in the back of her mouth and her whole kind of facial structure was kind of a disaster causing her sleep apnea, but wow. which is fine. She's a lot better now, but it's crazy to me. And when I think back on it, I'm like, I wonder what would have happened. Like if she wouldn't have just got a basic blood panel, just to look at it, you know, right. because it, you know, as you know, right, sleep apnea, if it's really bad and hers was really bad, um, causes all sorts of other issues, you know, just on your body in general, too. Oh, so. yeah, for sure. I, I've never heard of us like I don't deal with sleep apnea much, but as far as having to get your facial reconstruction, just based on I never heard of that before. That must have been super bad if they had to do that, because usually you put them on a CPAP and, you know, recommend diet and exercise. And usually you can do a lot of things with that. But that's crazy. yeah. There's, I did a whole podcast with Zach Couples on this too, and I think CPAPs are awesome and they definitely work. Um, so I'm in the process too. My wife has gone through this, is going through it now of looking at uh, facial and jaw structure and if there's anything you can change uh, with that, even as an adult. So the short version is I had just a disastrous um, teeth when I was a kid. I had teeth that were crooked, like completely sideways behind each other. So the standard thing was, which I'm grateful I had, you know, orthodontics, which was good for four and a half years. I had headgear, I had springs, I had rubber bands, but in essence, all they were doing was like rearranging the teeth on a structure that was already too small. Um, so it's not as some of the new, which is actually an older approach is to, can we open up the jaw, maybe the palate a little bit or change some of the underlying structure so that your teeth actually will move to a place that's better. So we're creating more space, not just trying to rearrange your teeth on the same structure. So, and the catch with some of all that is that it can interfere with your airway. And so if your airway is super narrow, then you're going to have stress symptoms all the time. Sure. So another buddy of mine, he's been doing this. He's in Chicago. He treats kids who have ADHD. And he's uh, basically an oral dentist. And I'm like, what do what you, the first time I talked to him, like six years ago, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? This makes no sense to me. And he's like, well, it's this simple. He's like, the kids I see, their structure is so bad that their airway is being impacted. And when we image their airway, it's super small. 
And so their brain thinks they're not getting enough oxygen. So all the symptoms they present are basically ADHD. So they clinically have ADHD because they're just like stressed out little sympathetic squirrels running around all day. And he's like, once we change that structure, especially in kids that are much more plastic, we get their airway open. And he's like, so far, like almost all of them, their symptoms of ADHD go away. It was just their brain was not getting enough oxygen. Wow, that's awesome. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's insane. Yeah, so anyway, huh. awesome. halfway down that. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, the amount of learning just related to physiology in general is just never ending. You know, yeah. it's just there. Yeah. So I always think that's a good, good info where people can go to get more information, which is great. And Absolutely. So if you're listening, get your blood work. The other positive I think is it's becoming easier to do it online. I mean, I confess I've done all my blood work only online in the last few years and because of COVID for better or worse, I think that'll become a much more real thing um, where telemedicine, you may not be limited to just someone in your area. Obviously, start with the normal doc you see, but there may be more options and they're dramatically coming down in cost now, too. Right. Because um, if people are listening and they're business owners, you're, and my insurance doesn't cover anything other than major medical. So everything is out of pocket on top of it. So having cash options that come down if you don't have insurance or only have major medical and you don't have to go into someone, I think we'll have more options in the future, which will make hopefully some of these things easier. Absolutely. So you had three items you wanted to talk about today. What's item number one? Yeah, well, we kind of already brought up colonoscopy. So yeah. I guess we can start with that. Um you know, we can kind of spin this however you want. I can just talk about the procedure and kind of what we look for and a couple of things, if that's what you'd like. Um, yeah, just give us some run now. So for people who are listening, they they may not know much about it other than uh, I probably should have one. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's number one for sure. So I'll just, I guess kind of go through my normal spiel that I give in the office and Perfect. kind of go from there. So as far as colonoscopies go, you know, the 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 previous recommended age to get them was age 50. If you have no family history and if you're having no problems, now they've actually lowered that to 45. And I'm not 100% sure if all insurances are on board with that yet. I know some of them are. So um, I'm starting to see a few younger people that are around that age group um, to come in and get one done. But um, if you have a family history, though, you should get one 10 years prior to the youngest relative that was diagnosed with colon cancer. So if your mm. father was diagnosed at the age of 40, you need to start getting them at the age of 30. Um, and, or if you're having any problems, big, big red flags, you would see is blood in your stool, obviously, you know, bright red blood, abdominal pain changes in your bowel habits. Um, just something that's not right. Your stool is changing in caliber. You know, if they go from normal size to, you know, like pencils or, you know, pellets or something like that. So there's actually a whole cascade of like diagnosis of stool it's really weird um hmm. there's pictures and you can show people what does yours the, look the like bristol and, stool scale yeah you see exactly the pictures the, of yeah, mr poo in the office yeah, the bristol <laughs> the people bristol love bristol. talking about that stuff oh i know it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny but anyway so so yeah so if someone comes to see me most often it's for screening they're not having any problems um so when you from an insurance standpoint if you're having no symptoms and you have no family history typically they won't pay for one before the age of 45 or 50 now. But if you're, you know, any type of changes, um, I, I'm usually a very conservative surgeon, but with scoping, I scope people more often than not. I've had a few 
people that I've found colorectal cancer younger than 30. Um, I had one guy that was a couple of years ago that his only symptom was it was just harder to push stool out. He had never had bleeding, no weight loss, night sweats, none of that, no family history. And I was like, okay, well, it's probably just diet or whatever. So I went in and scoped him and about, oh, the very top of the rectal vault, which is about 18 to 20 centimeters inside the colon, he had a circumferential mass, um, almost near obstructing. And, um, so I sent him to a colorectal specialist and he ended up having metastatic disease. He had big, you know, big balls of cancer in his liver. And, um, so he had to have a so bunch it already, of stuff. Basically done. it had already spread, right? Yeah. But he had no warning signs. I mean, he, he said, this wow. has been going on for about six months and you know, there's, unless it was a really, really aggressive cancer that it's been going on for a while. He just had no idea it was happening. So that was hmm. super unfortunate. So whenever I th- hear, think about those things, I'm always like, I'm going to scope sooner rather than later, but, sure. um, but it's one of the best diagnostic and therapeutic tests that we have. So meaning you can go and you can find things, but you can also like, treat at the same time. Um, it's, you know, I kind of tell people it's about three hours out of your day. You show up an hour before the procedure, the procedure is blocked off for about an hour, but usually takes 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how much work you have to do when you're in there, as far as taking out polyps and whatever. And then they go to recovery for about an hour, then they go home. Um, at our hospital, we use propofol, which is the, the Michael Jackson juice. You know, you just get some white stuff through the IV and fall completely asleep and have no idea what's going on. And it's, you wake up and you feel rested and go home. Um, Propofol is <clears throat> pretty fast acting if I remember correct. Don't yeah. they use that for cardio versions? I think too, if people have AFib. Yeah, they can. It's just to sedate them before they um, do either uh, defibrillation yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> or at a, some, yeah, we use propofol for a lot of things, you know, it's, it's a great drug it, and it's metabolized by the liver very quickly. Um, so it goes I don't think away. there's much respiratory issue with it either. Is there? There's some, cause they give a concoction. In high doses it can be, but yeah. yeah. And some people that are big drinkers, um, mm, they tend the to re- require a lot more propofol. So it takes way more to get him just to get him sleepy enough so we can do something. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, painless, the worst parts of the prep. So the day before you around noon or about two in the afternoon, actually, we use a whole, have them take a whole bottle of Miralax, um, which is a tasteless white powder that you mix and just have a ton of diarrhea. You know, I always tell them if you come in full of it, so to speak, I can't do my job very well. Cause you can miss so many things. So, yeah. um, just, so just magnesium citrate is what they use to kind of clean um, people out or is it different? No, it's polyethylene glycol. So that's, Oh, that's it's the, PG. Yeah. So that's what we <laughs> use. Yeah. And it That'll used to it. be, it used to be the go lightly, which you'd have to drink about a gallon of, of liquid mixed with them. People have a lot of throwing up and just bloating uh, from so much volume, but now using Miralax, you only have to use about half the volume and it works really well. So oh, different cool. places use different things and some big endoscopy centers, they've gone to what they call a split prep where they'll do half the day before and then half the morning of, if you're having it later in the day. And we just only do it in the morning. So we don't do that. And I usually, I would say about every hundred colonoscopies, I might get one that the prep is just not very good. So most people do really well with it. Yeah. And um, I think that's the problem that people are scared about because those are all like the horse, like the friends I know who've had it, like the horror stories I've heard were that I'm like, I had this like two gallons of this crap I had to drink and I felt horrible for this long. And I'm like, well, yeah, you kind of suck it up. But I think knowing that the prep isn't as bad as what it quote used to be is probably a good thing and hopefully will be less of a deterrent for people, especially 
you know, all these stories get psyched, cycled from like 10 years ago too. It's oh, yeah. one person had a bad experience and that's all you hear about. <laughs> yeah. It's either the prep or they have a friend that had a friend that had a friend that had a perforation from a colonoscopy right. and had to have surgery. And so it's always a risk and we always talk about it. It's super duper rare, but it can happen, but, um, it's a very safe procedure. So, you know, we drift off to sleep. We scope the entire colon, always do a rectal exam. Like for men, we check prostate, you know, looking for lesions or, or, uh, enlarged prostates and then just scope the entire colon. So when we get over to the right side, you can either see the opening of the appendix called the appendiceal orifice, or you see the terminal ilium. Um, and then from there you just back out and you're looking for polyps or diverticulosis or, you know, colon cancers, um, different entities, depending on why we're doing it. And then the nice thing is that there's polyps that are, I don't know, anywhere between a pinhead and even up to maybe even a golf ball, we can take them out endoscopically. Um, hmm. There's a couple of different devices we use. If they're smaller, there's these little like pincher graspers, almost like a little pair of tweezers type of looking thing on a long, on a long wire that we can do. Or there's like a little, it's called a snare, but I just call it a wire lasso. Basically yeah. wrap it around the base <laughs> of it, lop it off Whoop. and then suck it out through the scope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's cool. We can also tattoo the lesions when we're in there. So if it's like, it's a big mass or either if you're removing the entire thing or you're going to mark it later on for surgery, you just tattoo it with some India ink. You just inject it into the mucosa of the colon and then it'll soak up through the mucosa out into the serosa into the abdomen. And so from a surgical standpoint, if you go in robotically or laparoscopically, it's kind of an X marks the spot. So you know exactly where the lesion is because sometimes you can't feel it, you know. Um, so, so it'll show up on the skin then. Is that correct? Um, not on it, on the, on the colon itself, but it won't go clear through like on your abdominal wall. It, your okay, abdominal so wall just when you get inside, you know where it yeah. is, right? Yep. Got it. So it's Got on it. the outside of your organs. And sometimes you find this little spray of ink kind of in the area because hmm. it all matters how to set the surgery up. Cause if you're doing totally. the right colon, you set your port sites where you're going in one side. And if you're doing a left colon, you just kind of got to know where it is. So yeah if you're getting someone to operate on that you didn't do the scope on, you don't really know where it is. You're taking the GI guy's word for it or whoever. And so right. you got to kind of, it's right there. Ready. No, it wasn't there at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the other thing too, is, you know, the scope is numbered. There's numbers on it every 10 centimeters. And so you can say, Oh, is it, you know, 30 centimeters, which should be in the sigmoid. But um, sometimes if you get a loop in the scope, it's basically, you know, like pushing mm. a rope. And so you might actually be, way farther in or way farther out than you think. And so that really makes a difference. So, um, but anyway, once you're done, you go home and then I'll go over the pathology results in the office. And, you know, there's a couple different types of polyps. If you want me to go over those, um, the most common usually is what's called hyperplastic. So those are basically like a mole. They never turn to cancer. They can get bigger, they can bleed. Um, but they never turn to cancer. Um, Hmm. then there's the, the adenoma family, uh, there's uh, tubular adenomas, which is the most common of the adenomas. It's got like a five to 10% chance to turn to cancer, depending on what you read. Um, and then there's the tubulovillus adenoma, which is about a 30% chance to turn to cancer. And then a villus adenoma, which is about 50%. So the more you go up on that scale, the higher the risk of turning to cancer. And then they look at it to see if they've had any cellular dysplasia and they'll mark that on the, on the pathology. So then, you know, okay, it is rapidly dividing. We should maybe, you know, do a short follow-up in like six months to make sure that it's gone or talk about an elective resection if it's got some actual cancer cells in it. So, um, but it's a great test, you know, nobody wants to do it. No one's super excited to see me in the office for it. <laughs> I can but, imagine. Yeah. Hey, so, it's my colonoscopy today, doc. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one ever <laughs> is excited for sure. But, um, but yeah, so you can see a lot of things on the scope and sometimes we'll do it just for abdominal pain or diarrhea. You can go in and take some random biopsies. Um, you know, there's 
ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease that people talk about. Um, so you can get those diagnoses sometimes off colonoscopy. Ulcerative colitis is only in the colon and it starts like in the rectal area and spreads proximally. So you'll always find it there. And the difference, the main difference between those two, and you could talk an hour on each of them, but basically Crohn's can be anywhere between your mouth and your anus basically, because mm. it can skip around. And sometimes it's harder to diagnose, whereas ulcerative colitis, it's in the colon. It only stays in the colon. So, um, you can, do, you can usually, uh, figure that out by biopsies. Um, so, so that's another reason you might get a colonoscopy, but, um, as far as, uh, you know, colon cancer itself, it's like the third leading cause of death in the United States. So it's really wow, high. It's that high. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, in the last 30 years, looking at statistics, there's an, a higher incidence of it, but I kind of feel it's like, well, you know, I think we're just better at finding it. So I think we're finding it more than we were before. Um, I don't think it's necessarily worse, but if you look at it with tying to dietary stuff, which we can talk about in a second, you know, obesity is a huge pandemic also. And so it might be as a result of that also, it's hard to say for sure. But, um, <clears throat> as far as a couple studies that I'd found, um, I saw one study in the journal of physiology from back in February of 19 that did show that. So these, the, the study was small. I want to say it was like 20 people maybe that had colon cancer, but they would, they, they had survived it and they had operated and all that stuff. But they still had some residual cells in their body with some sort of lab values. What they did is they showed that acute high intensity exercise, and they defined that as four sets of four minutes, 85 to 90% of your max. Um, they would do those bouts and then they would recheck their serum levels. I want to say like two hours, six hours and 24 hours after. And they had statistically significant decrease in the amount of cancer cells in your blood compared to the people hmm. that didn't exercise. So interesting. not saying that CrossFit will cure colon cancer. That is not what I'm saying whatsoever, <laughs> but there's some data that is showing that. And they also had an increase in interleukin six, eight and tumor necrosis factors. So it showed some, it was kind of interesting. Um, so in a nutshell, basically, if you're, you know, healthy, you can maybe prevent some of these things as far as with just diet and exercise alone. Um, another study that I'd found in a cancer epidemiology from August of 2020 is basically reviewing mechanisms by which coffee can be pre protective against colorectal cancer and gastric cancers Yay. also. So I was excited about that. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, it said decaffeinated appeared to be statistically significant, better of downregulating cancer cells than caffeinated, whether that's mm. true or not. I don't know, but I personally drink coffee for caffeine. So yeah. <laughs> I'll take my chances, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, those are just a couple different things, but yeah, I mean, there's different reasons why we develop polyps and or cancers. Some of it's genetics. You can't really get around it. Um, there's been some talk about red meat. Um, yeah, that's one of the diets. questions I was going to ask because that always yeah. comes up. Like I know acquaintances who are like, no, I stopped eating red meat because of cholesterol and colon cancer. And um, I mean, a little bit I poked around in that literature. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't think there's a direct link, but what are, what is your thoughts? From what I know, I don't think there's a direct link. I think just in general that they're looking at Americans as far because it's mainly in America more than anywhere else. But right. just our our lifestyle of being more sedentary and eating crappy food and, um, not exercising. I think that plays a big role, but like the, the red meat thing, again, kind of usually the typical person, you know, you have a big steak, you have a big, huge loaded baked potato with everything on it. And you're not, you know, in a, in a soda or beer or something. So you're not eating healthy anyway, usually, but right. I think that's, what's a bigger thing. Um, I've never seen any direct, like, yes, eating red meat equals colon cancer, but I think it just makes you more likely but i don't think it 
I can't say for sure either way. Um, same with cholesterol. Like I personally, I have high cholesterol. I've had it for years and it's genetic and I've tried different things. I, I went almost vegan for one year hmm. and, um, it dropped like five points and that pissed oh, me wow. off. I was like a full year. I was being super good, <laughs> oh. you know, turkey bacon. I, I mean, I wasn't completely <laughs> vegan, but I would just like everything healthy and it did nothing. And so I was, well, screw it. If it's not going to help, I'm going to, uh, just eat what I want and then exercise more or whatever. So, um, but the one thing that did kind of derail a little bit for me paleo diet lowered my cholesterol by like 40 points oh wow um, that's a big difference yeah i'd read rob wolf's book um the paleo diet basically yeah. and kind of got his background and i'd forgot the little mechanism for med school when they talk about excess cholesterol or excess carbs get converted to cholesterol and so i was like well i'll give that a try and so i did it for like four months and it dropped me from like god mine was up into like the 240 range my total and it dropped me down to about 210 and i didn't, um, follow my own rules. I was teach my medical students that rotate with me. It's like always, you know, lab values is one time in, in space. It doesn't yeah, matter. You got to see where it was. And so I didn't look at my previous ones. And so it's like, well, it's still high. I'm going to go on a statin because I'm going to be an adult. And then, uh, so I went on that for like six months and I had a bunch of the muscle pains and weird cramps and weird injuries mm. from lifting and running. So I was like, told my doctor, I'm like, all right, I'm quitting this. Cause this is not helping me. It's, it's hurting me more than it is. So I haven't checked it since then, but I still try to eat relatively healthy. And if I would have just given it more time, that might've been better for me. I don't know. It's just one of those things, but yeah, um, I think part of that is also uh, <clears throat> insulin effect on cholesterol production. If I remember right, I might be yeah. accurate on that. So the HMG reductase pathway, I think, I think insulin yeah. makes it worse. So your body ends up creating more cholesterol, which is why if you look at data from unhealthy metabolic people versus healthy metabolic people it's like completely two different worlds right and almost all the data we have is from people that are kind of metabolic train wrecks where their glucose and insulin are unregulated and right yeah if you're dumping a, a crap ton of carbs into that system it's probably not going to go well you're not exercising you know versus someone who exercises a lot everything else is pretty good their cholesterol may be trending a little bit high i'm like yeah, maybe play with a little bit lower carbs, do some stuff. I think it can be beneficial, but it's, yeah, I think people over extrapolate from metabolic unhealthy people to recommendations for metabolically healthy people. And they're just two different pathologies or physiologies. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And we just, sometimes our, our numbers that we get things from, you know, not to derail again, but you know, the whole BMI thing, um, I don't know oh, if you've researched that. that much. And I just actually, <laughs> I did my own podcast. That was my topic for this week is the BMI and how it's pretty sucky and kind of talked about its origins or whatever, but it's just, it's all, but we base everything off of that. And I, you know, yes, I check it. I mean, I, it's just on my paper, but you yeah. know, even me, I'm, I'm overweight because my BMI is like 27. Yep. I'm 5'8 and weigh 180, 185, just depending on the week or whatever. But it's just like, I, you know, yes. Do I have a six pack? No. But am I overweight? No. Like, yeah, but it's just, uh, it's just not a good gauge of anything. So, um, yeah. And going back to the uh, colon exam, yeah. what is the, do you know about what the risk is of a perforation? Because that's <clears throat> the prep and like the risk of perforations are probably like the two main objections I hear. Right. from people like almost all the time. So perforation, I want to say it's like the last numbers, I think I was like 0.02% or something like so pretty low, possible, but low. extremely rare. Has it happened to me? Yes. It's happened a couple of times, but it's, you know, both times it's happened. They've had a bunch of previous operations and, and, or they had other medical diseases that made things more friable than, 
mm. than others. And, you know, it's, it's in the risks and we talk about it. And then if it happens, we go in and fix it. The worst part of it is if you miss it, you don't know that you do it. Cause sometimes at the time you don't know that it's evident, you know, one of the times it happened to me is I had no idea. It was just a small, tiny hole. And they came back 24 hours later to the emergency room with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, fever. And then I got a CAT scan and they had what's called free air, you know, basically where mm. there's a little hole in the colon and a bunch of air Oof. in the abdominal wall or cavity. And so I'd go in and find the little hole and over sew it and it was fine. But um, sometimes we don't know that it happens. But yeah, it's like way less than 1%. And so um, it's super safe, you know, probably, I don't know, statistically, probably die in a car wreck before you get a point colonoscopy perf, you know, but, um, it's just, unfortunately with anything in surgery or medicine, there is risks and you just have to talk about them. And as long as you're upfront about it and, you know, be honest and tell people about it, then if it happens, you know, it's so super sucks, but you go in and fix it and you know, it's fine. So, yeah. Cause I think people also have to be aware that there's a pretty high risk of having colon cancer. Right. So it's not like you're going in there for nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you're going in and just doing it because you wanted it done, that's something. But if we're, we're actually looking for disease and then, uh, you know, and then so if you end up having colon cancer and, you you know, having to have chemo, radiation and or colon surgery, you know, then you're going and having an operation, part of your colon out, puts you at higher risk for getting, you know, hernias later in life and or whatever. So it's like from a, a fitness exercise standpoint, it may limit you after having it just because you I mean, some people have it repaired and they're completely fine. They can do whatever, but other people are plagued with, you know, chronic pain and hernias and all that stuff. So a little to me going in with no cuts going in through the rectum and if you can take care of things before it starts, it's way better than waiting too late. So for sure. And is there a blood test now for colon cancer? I've heard some rumblings that there is, and some of the docs I talked to said, Yes, but it's not really that reliable. And there's sometimes false positives and the colonoscopy is still a kind of your gold standard. So yeah, if you're gonna have a colonoscopy, why even bother with the blood test? But I don't know right. if you know anything on that. As far as blood work, I don't know of any specific blood test, but you know, the there's the um the DNA sample that you can send in through the mail, the Cologuard, you know, what's advertised on yeah. TV. Um so it's better than just because before we would just do what's called a fecal occult, where basically you take some stool, smear it on a card and put this little developer on there. And if there's blood present, then it's positive. Um, but it's non-specific. So you could have had a little hemorrhoid and mm. had a hard bowel movement and been a positive for that or gastric ulcer or gastritis that cause en- just enough bleeding to detect bleeding. But <clears throat> the Cologuard is actually um, supposed to be better because it looks for actual DNA, but the false positive rate is like 15%. Some of their data seems it's pretty skewed. high. If I remember right, when I just poked around a little bit. Yeah. And so to me, I, I never recommend those. And it's not because I'm greedy and I want to do procedures. That's not it at all. It's like, I just don't think it's a good test because if it's, if it's a false negative, that's not helpful. Right. If it's false positive, <laughs> it's not helpful. And so, right. and out of all of the, col- all the positive guards that I've seen, I think I've only found a polyp in one person and they've all mm. been completely normal otherwise. So I've never found colon cancer in someone with a positive guard, just in my experience alone. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but, um, I just don't think it's a good test. Just colonoscopy is by far the best for sure. Yeah. Just, I threw it out there because some people are like, Oh, but I can get this other test and I don't have to do a colonoscopy. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I would recommend it is if they have like way higher risk to benefit ratio, if they're, you know, got horrible ejection fraction of their heart or they're on blood thinners, they can't go off of, or, sure. you know, so a lot of high procedural risk. Yeah. So then yeah. I would say, okay, let's get this and follow it. But I, otherwise I just recommend a scope. So, yeah. 
Awesome. Yeah. What's number two on the list? So number two, we'll, we'll go on to gallbladder. Um, that's probably one of the most common surgeries that I do. Um, and again, we can kind of talk about whatever you want, function. Yeah. Diet. What does a gallbladder do for people listening? So gallbladder is a little pear-shaped organ that hangs out in the liver on the bottom side. Um, basically, it's a garage for bile. It's kind of how I explain it to people. Uh, so your liver bile makes, garage. It is. It's a bile <laughs> garage. So the liver makes bile, a bunch of it throughout the day. And so some of it gets stored in the gallbladder. And so the way the gallbladder is stimulated, so like in a normal natural sense, you eat a meal that's higher in fat. Um, then your gallbladder, there's a signal called cholecystokinin or CCK that's released from your duodenum and it goes up and says, Hey, we need help breaking this food down. So then your gallbladder will squeeze, dump a bunch of bile down in there. And so help start emulsifying fat and breaking everything down so it can be absorbed for, um, you know, nutrients and whatnot. Uh, so that's the normal storage or the normal function of that. Um, you know, most people, you know, they can get along fine. but some people, you know, they have problems. So there's kind of two big reasons to get your gallbladder. Well, there's more than two, but the two main ones I typically see is either you have a, you know, gallstones that is formed from over the years of bad diet and maybe lack of exercise. There's some correlation between that, or if it just doesn't work properly. So, um, if I get a patient in the office that's, you know, Hey, I might have gallbladder disease. Um, the first step we do is getting an ultrasound of the gallbladder. So, go over to radiology and they put jelly on your belly and look around. And so they're they're, from a general surgical standpoint, I look for four things. I like to see if there is stones there or not. Um, I like to see how thick the gallbladder wall is because a a thicker gallbladder wall can indicate either chronic inflammation or acute inflammation or infection um, at the time of the scan. I also look to see how big the common bile duct is, which is the main bile duct that drains the liver. And then I look to see if there's what's called pericolcystic fluid or fluid around the gallbladder. So Basically, it's just looking at anatomy. So if anything of that, you know, after doing a good history and physical exam, checking blood work, and if you have stones or it looks thickened or whatever, and your story fits with gallbladder disease, we'll talk about taking the gallbladder out. Um, sometimes, though, you get in there and the ultrasound is completely normal. And then they're like, all right, what's next? And so depending on what I think it is, if I'm on the fence where it's like, man, this could be stomach or this could be gallbladder. I'll typically, and I'll give the patient the option. I'm like, okay, these are our options. We could either go continue down the gallbladder tree and do a different test, which I'll talk about in a minute, or we can just go do what's called an EGD, which is an upper scope where we can go down and just like a colonoscopy, but you're going down the throat into the stomach. And I'll go through that in a minute as well. Um, looking for gastritis or peptic ulcer disease or, you know, duodenitis or something like that. So, um, just cause based off where all the, you know, the embryologic origins of the gut, you know, the foregut, they all come from the same area. So some of the pain distribution is the same. So sometimes it's really hard to figure out like based off just story alone, what it is. Cause sometimes it's a slam dunk. Sometimes it's like, God, I don't know, could be flip a coin and pick. Well, yeah, you know? it's like abdominal pain. Okay. Right. I mean, I, I think people sometimes forget that where you have pain, especially in the visceral area, the abdominal area, the mid part of your body, whatever term you want to use, it can be sourced somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I mean, it could be like, ah, I've got pain in this lower area. Eh, it doesn't mean that there's something going on in that area specifically. There definitely right. could be, but mm-hmm. it, it it's not like, oh, point here. Oh, that's the liver. Oh, there's a gallbladder. <laughs> right. It'd be nice if it was that easy, but it's not right. always that easy. But, um, but yeah, so, so if we're going down the gallbladder tree, um, the next step I would get is what's called a HIDA scan, which is a, a gallbladder scintigraphy. So it's a nuclear medicine study and it checks the function of your gallbladder. So your gallbladder might look completely normal, but it's just not working well. 
So you go over, it's a two-part test. You get an IV, you get an injection of some dye that the dye will go up into the biliary tree and light up the gallbladder, light up the hepatic branches, and then just to see if everything fills up properly. And then there's a next step where they'll give you synthetic CCK and then your gallbladder empties and then they calculate your ejection fraction of velocity and how much comes out or whatever. And they calculate how well your gallbladder functions. So based off of that, we may go to the operating room and take your gallbladder out. Um, it's like a cardiac nuke scan, but for your gallbladder. Exactly. People are familiar with that. Yeah. Right. Yep. So you go in there, you light it up with a bunch of dye and you see what happens. <laughs> that, is, that is how I know exactly it's a great dramatic oversimplification, but well, no, I mean, that's pretty much what it is for sure. So, um, and what's weird is, you know, the ejection fraction, what's considered normal is greater than 35%, which why they picked that number. I don't really know. That seems low. Like if you, you know, look yeah. at any other percentile, it's a low number, but, um, but so if it's less than 35%, that can be an indication as long as the story fits and, you know, cause it can be, you know, if you've been fasted for a few days and haven't been eating, um, if you've been sick or whatever from other entities, your gallbladder fraction can be lower just cause your gallbladder is not as full and it's not right. functioning as well. So it just got to go with the whole story. Um, so less than 35% with, and the other thing I always talk about is reproduction of symptoms. So if they're like, Oh my God, it feels just like a day when I end up in the ER, abdominal pain goes around to the right side into my back. Like, I feel that's a positive test. Let's go take out your gallbladder. Um, if it's above 35%, that's considered normal. However, again, if it's 50% ejection fraction, which is completely normal, but it's exactly the way they felt, I don't really care what the number is. I take the gallbladder out if it's based off of that. Um, and then in the last like three years, there's been a new study um, showing that people that have hyper-functioning gallbladders, so their ejection fraction is greater than like 80%. Because before we always considered that as normal, but I'm I'm actually in the camp of believing that if you have hyperkinesis, which is the word, even though it's a misnomer, but the Lots gallbladder of works, movement. yeah, the gallbladder <laughs> works too fast or too hard or whatever. But um, I've taken people's gallbladders out for that. I think I have about at least twelve patients in my practice with that specific thing, and I would say all but one has gotten better, like they're completely fine. So hmm. um, not all. What's going on are, with that? Like, what do they present with the same symptoms then, or different yeah. symptoms? No, it's same symptoms. It just sounds oh, like weird. gallbladder, but then it's like, oh, well, your gallbladder function is completely normal. But then it's like, so five years ago, I'm like, well, it can't be your gallbladder. It's got to be something else. Go see GI or do something different. But now that I've learned, I read the paper was out of like, uh, I think it was out of California. There was a general surgeon that had like 25 to 30 patients that he was, he believed that there was more to it. So he just took people's gallbladders out. And I want to say like 90 some percent of his patients all got better. So oh, wow. I kind of based my, you know, practice off of that. And I've had really good luck with that. If it's, you know, obviously the right problem. Um, sure. cause I always say, you know, I tell people like, if you come back to me, thinking I'm a magician that I, you feel amazing. Then we did the right surgery. But if you come back and you're like, I feel the same, it's like, crap, yeah. we chose Oops. the wrong. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I think sure. that some people should realize too, is that <clears throat> I think there's an assumption that physicians, even the best educated, most well-intentioned physicians have all the data and that we understand everything. And that that's like, so far from the truth. It's oh. like, you're doing the best you can <clears throat> always based on limited data, which means that you can follow all the rules, all of the best data, do everything to a T, but it may not solve their issue, right? Because yeah. there's so many things that we just don't understand yet. For sure. 
And I always tell my patients that I'm like, this should help you. I'm not going to promise yeah. you. I'm not giving you hundred percent guarantee. You're going to feel amazing because you should, but you might not. So as long as you're on board with that, we'll go ahead and proceed with your surgery and see what happens. So, um, so that's kind of how I practice. And there was this paper that came out, I don't know, eight or nine years ago that showed since laparoscopic surgery has been invented, like surgeons do too many gallbladders because it's drive-through surgery. You come in and go home the same day. And uh, in general, right upper quadrant pain does not always equal gallbladder disease. And so sometimes we jump at the, you know, some, some people are more eager to do procedures than others as far as for whatever reason. And uh, so I'm, I'm of the camp that I want to make sure that I'm doing it for the right reason, not just doing it because I can. Um, so I kind of really make sure I want to do it for the right reasons before I take someone's gallbladder out. Um, do you think that's so. a little bit of a carryover from lack of a better word, old time physicians of just taking shit out, like your tonsils don't need them. Appendix, take it out. Gallbladder, bah. <laughs> I don't know. And That's an oversimplification, I'm sure. But <laughs> there may be some truth to that. But, uh, you know, I feel some of us that have trained more recently that we're, you know, it's gotten a lot better. It has. And, uh, you know, just doing it to do it isn't, again, always the right reason. But as long as we're going to help somebody out, you know, but yeah, there's some people that just, I can do this procedure. I'm going to do it because I can, you know, and uh, medicine, you know, there's been scams over the years with different things that you read about different lawsuits for people doing unethical things. Unfortunately, it happens in our profession, but I like to think most people are out to help and not just, you know, there's better ways to make money than doing it just to do it, you know? Yeah. And I think we learn more about what each thing is doing as a function, right? Because I think, you know, my guess is a gallbladder is probably doing more than just sequestering bile, even though that's its main job and that's what it does in life. Right. Like we used to think the appendix, bah, who needs an appendix? It's just an extra vestigial thing that's just hanging out there. It doesn't do anything. Yep. Now we're like, oh yeah, it actually does some shit. Oh, <laughs> right. No, I mean, it, it does have a function. It's got a little bit of immune function, but you know, we always say God gave us an appendix for surgeons to have something to do. So yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what we, <laughs> kind of what we say, but, um, but yeah, there's in, I'm sure there's a lot more stuff to gallbladders than we know, but, um, you know, obviously people can live without them because we do yeah. a lot of them every day. And, you know, as far as complications of the procedure, most commonly you can have transient diarrhea, you know, after every time you eat, you go to the bathroom and that's just your body. Your liver hasn't figured out how to secrete more bile to help break down food. Cause normally it can rest when the gallbladder is present. Cause then the gallbladder kind of does its job. But now the liver's got to like, Hey, I got to pump out more bile over the day to help break down food so you can be normal again. Um, so that's kind of one of the, one of the things that can happen after gallbladder surgery, other than, you know, bile duct injuries and other things that can happen. Um, that's kind of the big complication if you want to say, but it's pretty rare too. It almost always goes away within three to six. Yeah. Months. I was going to ask, do you know how long that hangs out? Because that's one of the questions <laughs> I had is that like on intake forms, like if I find someone is super sensitive to high dietary fat, I'll ask them if they've had their gallbladder out. And sometimes it's like years later and they're like, yeah. And in my head, I'm like thinking, what is kind of the timeline? Because the body is going to adapt and over time, it's probably going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So is it just a coincidence that they're having a dietary issue with fat and their gallbladder came out and it's not a bile issue or because they're missing a gallbladder, is it potentially a thing or who knows? It's, it's, I don't think we completely know, but what I tell my patients is on average, I say it can be three to six months. I know I have one person in my practice that just has chronic diarrhea every time they eat. They run to the bathroom and there's nothing yeah. we can do now, whether it's other dietary things, I don't know. I haven't followed up with them for years, but, um, but in general, most people they'll have three to six months of possible diarrhea. I've had a couple of people though. They're like, 
oh my God, two days later, I went and had a foot long chili cheese coney from Sonic <laughs> and I feel amazing. It's like, well, most of the time we recommend a diet lower in fat, you know, in the short term, just yeah. to make everything not work as hard and be easier on your system. And I always tell people too, it's like, if there are foods that wrecked you before your gallbladder, just avoid those for a while. And then yeah. after a month or so, just test it, just eat something and you're not going to hurt anything. You'll just feel like crap if you're not ready to do that yet. But I would say three to six months is the general thing. So if it's 10 years later, it could just be still a chronic, you know, what they call dumping syndrome mm-hmm. after, you know, gallbladder surgery, but it could be something else too. You know, it could be their gut microbiome is wrecked or their, you know, some sort of other, you know, trash can diagnosis, IBS type of thing or something. So it's hard to say, but. Is there any supplements or anything that may help with that in the transition period, or do they just keep reducing fat and keep it kind of under sort of a threshold till their body adapts? Um, I haven't learned of any actual like natural supplements that I know of yet. Um, you know, there people talk about bile salts or, you know, yeah, whatever bile, bile salts acids. and ox bile. And there's some yeah, I've interesting never pres- things out there for sure. And I've never prescribed those. And actually that's one things I'm learning about in the functional medicine thing. So I haven't got to that part yet, but, um, I would kind of tell people low fat diet, things that, you know, bother you avoid those for whatever reason, lettuce is a big trigger. And huh. I don't know why that is. It doesn't make sense, but people have came to me before that they're like, every time I eat salad, I'm like, well, what's on your salad? You know, usually it's eggs, bacon, fat, fatty ranch, you know, all the things that you dress right. salads up to make it taste good. But sometimes they're like, I just eat like a turkey burger with a little piece of lettuce and I am just wrecked. And so it's like, okay, well, hmm. you know, so what, I don't know why lettuce is a trigger, but that's one that I've learned more often than not that people say they eat lettuce and it kind of makes me look at their gallbladder if they still have their gallbladder. Um, huh. interesting, but yeah, it's weird. I don't know why that is. Uh, but yeah, a lot of times dietary things, you know, like talk about gallstones, you know, 80% of gallstones are made up of cholesterol. So typically people that have a higher cholesterol diet or, you know, that doesn't mean they have high cholesterol systemically, just their dietary intake of cholesterol that it's more propensity to form gallstones. Um, so the rest, like the less 15% of gallstones are like calcium based usually. So, Mm. but the majority of them are gallstones and it's really weird. Everybody's different. Like I've taken people's gallbladders out. They have one huge one, the size of an egg. Other people comes out is like sand. Some of them are pebbles. I took one guy's out that had like a little hundred little rocks in there. So it's just weird how different people make different things. And I don't know why that is for sure. But yeah, um, we see that in the vascular system too, right? We used to always assume that it was all plaque. And now there's different types of plaque. There's vulnerable plaque. There's uh, when I did a dissection once, we had a couple times uh, just complete calcification of the vessel. And it was like a hard pipe. Yeah, it was just hard as a rock. You're like, whoa. And it's just so crazy to see differences in quote unquote, the same organ, you know? Oh, yeah. I always find that just fascinating in sort yeah. of a weird way. <laughs> For sure. No, that is. It is crazy how different things are different, you know? And just when you like, I remember medical school, some of our cadavers, we had like 25 or so, and we'd go around and look at different ones and just yeah. people that are the same age, same reason they died and their organs are all just different and weird. It's kind of crazy. So. Yeah. And if you get the chance to do uh, fresh tissue stuff too, is that just the colors are different, the arrangement, like the size of stuff. Like it's, it's crazy to see how different people are one from the other, but yet at the same time, similar, right? It's like, and then you get into all just the, the wacky pathologies, which I often joke that it's, if most of the time everything goes right. But if something goes wrong, there's a pathology for it and almost anything can go wrong from like weird shit like dextrocardia where your heart's on up. It's like rotated and flipped on the other side and 
all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh yeah. (laughs) One of the craziest I saw in residency, we had a 16 year old kid that came in with appendicitis, but he had total situs inversus where all of his organs were flipped backwards. And uh, it was, I'd never seen that before. I've never seen it since, but uh, so yeah, you just, everything was a complete mirror image. So we had to take his appendix out from the left, you know, the patient's right side over to the left side. That's where the appendix was, but everything else was, it was just crazy. And so uh, I think I was like a fourth year resident. And so you have five years of residency. And usually by the time you're up there, you do surgeries by yourself. But my attending kicked me to the side. He's like, you're not doing this. I've never done one of these either. So come on. But yeah, so that was, uh, that was pretty crazy. So for sure. Yeah. I used to work for medical device company. And so I'd observe a lot of procedures. I worked in technical service. And so they're putting in a, a pacemaker. So they put the device in, they have little wires, they run down into the heart. And so they're going in through the vessel. They usually get access, you know, right up at the top part of the rib cage mm-hmm. and they put a little wire in and then they run uh, the leads over it. Yep. And so we're all watching on fluoroscopy, which is just fancy x-ray. And we're looking at the little wire and we see it go in and then we see it because the fluoroscopy is just 2D, right? So you're just looking at the scan in lifetime straight down and we see a wire, which appears to go straight into the lung of the patient. And everyone in the room just like stops and I'm standing behind the anesthesiologist and I'm looking at the monitors and the monitors are all fine. And for like half a second, a couple of seconds, the, the, you know, even the main docs like looking around and then nothing dropped. And they realized the patient had what they call persistent left main where the vessel structure actually takes this completely different path somewhere else. And so they were still in the vessel. They hadn't punctured into the lung. It's just this weird anatomy thing that makes it look like you're in the lung because you're looking at just this 2D view and they verified it and switched the views and stuff. And they're all like, oh, thank God. Oh, that's good. (laughs) But it was crazy because I'm standing there and I'm going, "Uh oh, I'm like started backing away. I'm like, oh, shit's going to hit the fan now. And everyone just stops. And I'm like, oh, the patient didn't crash. This is good. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. You see all sorts of weird stuff at times. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. Anything else on that? Any sort of preventative things Um, people should know or symptoms possibly that they should talk to their doc? Yeah. So one study I read basically, you know, increased activity can lower risk of gallstones. So basically, again, it kind of goes with, you know, obesity and diabetes. Metabolic syndrome can cause an increase in gallstone formation just because you're not healthy. Things aren't moving through properly. Usually diet is bad. So again, you know, uh, that's one option. You know, there is one medication on the market. It's called Actigal that supposedly dissolves gallstones, but it doesn't work. I think I prescribe it. <laughs> now it takes Sounds over, great. <laughs> it takes over a year to even maybe be, worked, but everybody I've ever prescribed it for, cause they want to be, you know, all natural. And I'm completely on board sure. with that. And I was like, well, I'll give you this medication, but when you're ready, call me. And I've got all of their gallbladders. Cause they were like, okay, I'm taking this for five months. It's not doing anything. I'm ready. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So that's one way, you know, or just trying to, you know, decrease your cholesterol intake, doing more of like a Mediterranean style diet. Um, that's kind of been shown to do that. And as far as exercise also, you know, exercising does not prevent gallstones, but usually you're more of a healthy lifestyle, thus you'll be less likely to make them. And so it just kind of goes hand in hand with everything else. Um, cool. So that's kind of the main thing with that. Yeah. So then there's other like, oh, um, there's like a some sort of visceral manipulation techniques that can be done that some people really believe in. I've taken a course on it before and it's kind of different. So like there's, there's a technique called gallbladder flush, which basically you kind of get behind them. You put your hands underneath the rib cage and basically milk the gallbladder. And there's studies shown that people had gallstones before, then they ultrasound them after and the gallstones are gone. So you can kind of manual manipulation type of thing. But 
I've not really done much with that, but I know it's out there. So some people looking for like a visceral medicine or a visceral manipulation specialist can go to get different entities done, you know, supposedly breaking up scar tissue or, you know, making hiatal hernias less painful by massaging the sphincter, you know, the GE junction or whatever. So there's a lot of other alternative medicines out there you can do, but it's not really mainstream medicine. So do you do any visceral work since you have kind of an osteopathic background? That's usually bigger in osteopathy. I mean, yeah, we learned like, it's kind of like nutrition. We had one course on it. We only did it once. (laughs) And so I actually took a full course of it back in uh, August of last year. I went up to Denver and did a three day course and it was, I haven't practiced it much. It's just interesting concept where you can, you know, just basically you palpate and try to see if there's an organ dysfunction based. There's like your organs make these little movements that are very subtle that you try to find that and you can augment their movements to try to increase disease, whether or decrease disease, uh, symptomatology. And I just haven't done enough of it to know if I buy into it or not. There's a lot of people out there that do it though. And so I feel just like anything else in life that if a lot of people do it, there must be something to it. But if like one crazy person, only does it then it's like well maybe there's nothing to do that but there's a lot of people that buy into it big time so yeah uh, a buddy of mine from australia came over to the u.s and did like a whole week with god i'm blanking on who's like the godfather of visceral stuff well there's a guy named jean-pierre burrell who yeah uh, that's who it was institute he's the guy that kind of created he's a french osteopath that kind of yeah it was a french osteopath and i don't know if you followed him or one of his underlings around for like a week it was super expensive he flew all the way over from australia to do it and I asked him at the end, I said, how was it? He goes, it was good. It was very interesting. I'm like, I said, my interpretation, which is just overly simplistic, is it's no different than any other type of massage. You just have a lot of organs and stuff there that you're working around. Like the principles are the same. If something doesn't feel like it's moving, you're trying to get it to move a little bit better. Obviously, you can't use high pressure. And he's like, yeah, after paying, like, I don't know what he paid, like five or 10 grand or some, a lot of money. He's like, that's pretty much it. And you just practice a lot. <laughs> that is pretty much it like, for sure. Okay. And you know, like anything, like you get into these sub niches of people who are like, yes, I rearranged their uterus and they have kids now. You're like, ah, I, I, I want to see some proof of that, you know, so you, right. you have like the end of that, but I've just found with even just on hands-on work here in Minnesota that it's super useful because a lot of people who have like breathing stuff going on, like real simply, right. The diaphragm has to come up and go down and the viscera, the organs have to move up and down a a couple inches. Yeah. If that whole area for lack of a better word is just stuck, then it just impacts just breathing mechanics. Yeah. Um, I remember asking Tom Myers this once I did a bunch of work with him uh, because before I left for the training, people were just giving me a bunch of shit for doing visceral work. And I, I asked him that and he's like, he looks at me and he goes, yes, the viscera has to move up and down a couple inches and just kind of walks away. Like, why are you asking me this? <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> right. So, you know, there's a lot of things to that, you know, like I do, somebody's in like, there's different ways to increase parasympathetic tone or decrease yep. sympathetic, you know, like uh, a common use after surgery is people have a post-op ileus where, you know, their bowels are asleep from anesthesia or manipulating the intestines or whatever. So you can do some like work on the paraspinal muscles to, you know, increase parasympathetic tone to help them start moving. So there's some data that shows that's pretty helpful. So there's a lot of little things that we can do. Um, the, the sad thing is, is osteopaths in general, you know, probably about 10% of people, you really use it. And it's just kind of a, like, 
I don't know, I guess a comfort level. Like I took interest in it. So I feel very comfortable and I bet 10% of my practice is just manipulation. So I'll get people into my office just to, you know, fix their neck, fix their back, whatever problems they're having. And so, um, I'm a big believer in all of that. So I I always feel it's worth trying. It's not going to hurt anything. You know, as long as it's not contraindicated and you're not doing anything crazy, it's why not? I mean, you know, it's, it'd be helpful for sure. So, yeah. Cool. And you got time to go over the last one. You okay for time or? Oh yeah, no problem. So the last one we're going to talk about is like gastric ulcers, gastritis in general. So, um, you know, so, uh, people can have just upper abdominal pain and vaguely some, you know, typically it's very shortly after eating. Um, it can be certain foods, spicy or acidic foods like citrus, pineapple, things like that. Um, people that take a lot of anti-inflammatory medications. So ibuprofen, Aleve, uh, aspirin, um, stress is always a big trigger as well. I kind of always put that at the end of the list. I always look for bad things first. And then if anything else looks fine, it's like, Oh, how stressed are you? Oh, I'm a lot of stress. Okay. That's yeah. probably why you're having this. Um, a lot of alcohol consumption, smoking. Um, there can also be a bacteria called H pylori or helicobacter pylori that can cause gastritis and gastric ulcers. Um, so <clears throat> the only way to really diagnose that is off of endoscopy and biopsying. Um, there is a stool sample you can do. That's probably the most accurate of the non-invasive testings for H. pylori, but, um, that the best way is endoscopic, you know, visualization with biopsies. Um, yeah, and then if that's positive, the, you got to do antibiotics. The dis- so. discovery of that, like it used to all be stress and wasn't the main researcher who discovered it. So to speak, didn't he give himself H. pylori and give himself an ulcer and had it imaged? I think sort of did. as an end of one to prove because <laughs> no one else believed him. And they told him he was full of shit. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how that went down. Yeah. Um, it could be just a rumor, but it makes a cool story. <laughs> oh, for sure. Kind of like the guy that, you know, came up with the idea of washing our hands after surgery or in between cases yeah, that we thing, had little, yeah. little animals that lived on us that were bacteria. Nobody knew that. They're like, what? Either. You're a crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, but, um, but yeah, so that's the most common thing you see is abdominal pain or whatever. And so to me, I like to know what I'm treating instead of just giving them an anti- um, you know, like an H2 blocker or, a or a, a proton pump inhibitor, like a Miprazole or Prilosec. I like to scope them to see, especially if they've never had one before. Now, if they've had a scope and it's a year ago, usually it's like, okay, let's get you back on your medication. Let's try avoiding certain foods. Let's try, you know, how much caffeine do you drink? How much, how much do you sleep and try to do lifestyle modifications. But, um, but if people, you know, increase their exercise, if they really cope with their stress, well, if they can stop smoking and taking alcohol and, or, um, you know, increasing their sleep, that's been shown to be helpful. Um, there's a couple studies that I'd read recently that, uh, during exercise. So basically your blood, if you're especially like endurance athletes, when you're out running for long periods of time, your blood gets all shunted to your skin and your muscles and your gut takes a hit just because, well, we're not using it right now. So right. you just have to take a hit and you can get like, I want to say the, the study that I read, if you're exercising around 70% of your VO2 max, you get about a 60 to 70% decrease in your splanchnic blood flow. So you're only getting, you know, 30% of your blood flow to your organs, like you normally do. So you hear about, you know, marathon runners getting severe diarrhea during running just because they have no blood flow to it from ischemia. Um, so another thing that I, uh, I read is that you can uh, exercise can increase, uh, serum oxytocin levels. And mm. if you're given exogenous oxytocin, it has an anti-ulcer effect. So in theory, I think people think that if you by exercising more, you're triggering internal or intrinsic oxytocin that may help with anti-ulcer formation. So that's something that's kind of in the literature that's been shown. Um, another thing is, uh, taking turmeric turmeric's got a lot of, a lot of properties that you can use, but it's been shown to be anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, antioxidant, 
um, wound healing. Um, so the curcumin, which is in it, it's about, you know, two to 5% of the turmeric acid. And so it's got properties like vitamin C and E as far as, uh, the um, antioxidant properties, but there was a study that they did. Basically they had a people, I think it was endurance athletes again, where they had them go out running and they had the same program, but one arm got turmeric and one didn't. And the, the ones that got turmeric were they, they were, they showed to be superiorly like gastroprotective. So they had less, less incidence of ulceration formation just from exercising too much or whatever. So it's one of those things hmm. where I feel that it'd be worth looking at, um, as far as taking it, if you can handle it or you want to or whatever. So, um, do you have any preference on the type of turmeric? Because historically the <clears throat> bioavailability is kind of crappy. So there's people who put it in, you know, phytosomes and supposedly lipospheric and putting it with a little bit of oil, or do you have any I preference on that? I personally don't, I haven't really prescribed it a whole lot. I'm still kind of tinkering with this stuff, you know, so I don't have, you know, I kind of just try to research to see what, you know, less ingredients and things. Yeah. I probably wouldn't get it from Walmart. I would probably spend a little more money (laughs) for sure. But yeah, I don't have a brand or anything that I like endorse or whatever. I'm just kind of like, well, you know, go get it. You know, I'll, I'll research. Here's a couple you can give it a try and see what you think and whatever, but I haven't prescribed it a whole lot. So. Yeah, I know Mariva, that's a trademark brand, has some interesting data on it too. I know Thorne has that and some other companies do. So mm-hmm. I've I've used that and I've used versions that have a little bit of coconut oil with it. And you know, it's anecdotal. I can't say I've noticed a difference per se between people, but yeah, sure. that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. So um, and as far as, you know, preventing gastric ulcers, cause you know, if you let them go too long, you can lead to what's called a gastric perforation, or you come in, in the middle of the night with a hole in your stomach and, Oof. you know, it's kind of, uh, it doesn't happen very often anymore, but kind of, a, it's kind of weird how some pathologies like appendix, they're kind of like, uh, I think it started a day or two ago, but usually with gastric perfs they're like, it was eight seventeen. I was watching TV and this happened. It's very specific of when it happens. Huh. Um, and to go in and fix it, uh, basically you just go in and you can just, over sew the hole and drag a little bit of what's called your omentum, which is the kind of fatty apron that hangs off your colon. We use that as what's it's called. It's like a plug and patch. Basically hmm. um, you just go over, pull the omentum over it, sew that down and kind of plug the hole. And then you put an NG tube down them for a couple of days and make sure there's no leak. And then you can take it out and start feeding them. And so you don't have to do this big gastric resection or, you know, like a gastric bypass type of thing that people get. And it's kind of a non, it's still invasive, but it's less than it used to be years ago. So that's kind of, would be a good reason to, you know, prevent this happening is having a hole in your stomach and you got to go in and have it fixed. (laughs) So yeah, for sure. Do you see like PPIs, right? So proton pump inhibitors, as you mentioned, are one of the main drugs used to treat that. Do you, I just see more clients now coming in on them. And to me, again, I'm not a physician, but it it makes sense to my brain in the short term. But I always have them like, I'm like, go, go back to your doc and ask him, like, are you going to be on this like the rest of your life? Or like, what's your plan to, to kind of get off it? And a lot of times they're like, oh, I don't know. They just told me to stay on it, which from what I've read, I don't know if that's the best idea. Yeah, the high dose long term use has been shown to like chronic kidney function um, right. decline and everything like that. And it just depends on the person because typically what I do if I scope somebody and they've got pretty bad gastritis or ulcers or whatever, I'll put them on like uh, my go to is Amiprazole or Prilosec because it's been around the longest and it's cheap and it works. Um, so I'll put them on that twice a day. And then I also give them sucralfate or caraphate, which is a medicine that will kind of coat the stomach. And so mm. you, you take them together. And so the thing about that one that sucks is you got to do it four times a day to be completely effective. If you take it three times a day, it's still pretty good. So the 
the carafate, I'm typically having be on it for a month. So once they're off, once they're done with a month and I say, okay, you run out of that medicine, you're done. And then usually what I'll tell them is like, okay, drop from twice a day to once a day on the prior second, see how you feel. And within a day or two, if they're not ready, then they'll be like, oh my God, I felt like crap again. I was like, all right, go back on it for another month, twice a day and we'll see how it goes. And I always try to get people off of them, but there's just some people that, I don't know, you live in the Midwest also, but in Kansas, yeah. most people that come to see me or they, you know, they love fast food. They don't want to, they may not want to do other changes. Right. Yeah. Yep. So then they're stuck. It was like, well, you, okay, I guess be on this for the rest of your life. If you won't do any other lifestyle changes, because it's really hard to, you know, as you know, to get people to change. And so it's like, all right, well try to go off it if you can, you know, but then if there's been some disease processes that you have less gastric acid, you know, that you can lead to other, you know, gut problems or whatever. So you get in this big vicious circle that you can't get out of sometimes so yeah because then i've seen it's like you said the catch-22 of now they start having digestion issues going on that they didn't have before but they probably need to be on the med because they've got the thing going on in the the stomach and i right yeah that's what makes me nervous about people long term and i get it like if you're not going to do anything to change your lifestyle then you're, you're kind of stuck with what you have but i yeah, i sure. think sometimes physicians don't explain to them that Hey, here's what's going on. Here's our plan of what we want to do. Oh, and by the way, this involves you changing your lifestyle. And, you know, some people are going to want to do that. Some people won't. Yeah. But I think it's probably easier because so many people don't want to do any lifestyle changes. You've got 15 minutes to talk to someone mm-hmm. to not give them the potential option either, you right. know, because that's more work, more interaction mm-hmm. in the back of your head. You're probably going, eh, 90% of people don't do it at all. So I, I get why there's not always the, the option of, you know, here's kind of the long-term plan too. Right. And typically what I always do too, is I always, you know, I think, you know, with polypharmacy in America, I always look at medicines. I'm like, well, a couple of these are, could be f- causing your problem. You know, you're on, you know, chronic meloxicam for your low back pain and, you know, taking that twice a day or once a day or whatever can cause ulcerations. So I kind of try to find medications to see if we can stop them also that may help, or if you, you're taking ibuprofen every six hours, it's like, well, let's try not doing that and see yeah. <laughs> if you're, you get better. Right. And so, but a lot of people don't, and I always give them options. I'm like, Hey, if you want to do lifestyle changes, you know, I like doing those things, come back and see me. We'll sit and talk about it. And I bet maybe one out of every hundred actually do. Most yeah. people just don't want to. And it's so frustrating for me. It's like, help me help you. And I'd love to help you. And I'll yeah. block off time just to talk to you. But most people just, eh, I don't want to, I just want to take a pill and be fine. And whatever. So, yeah. If somebody does want to do lifestyle changes, what would be like kind of the top three things you would look at for that? I mean, from what I've read, it's, it's pretty hard. Like I have one client, I've got a couple of clients who've had it and like the literature I've pulled on it for lifestyle stuff. It, it, it just seems like I might as well take a shotgun at a target and just kind of start guessing stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, and it's, uh, if, if, again, if there's easily modifiable things, which definition of easy, depending on who you are, but like smoking, alcohol, right. Um, you know, acidic foods, stress, like so all those things, if you can get those in check, I think that would help a lot. And then again, looking at medications or, you know, whatever, but everybody, you know, it's like, well, every time I eat pizza, I feel like crap, but I love pizza. It's like, well, okay. You know, you have a choice. Right. So, uh, but it's all, most of it comes down to lifestyle modification, you know, weight loss has been shown to help with reflux disease, you know, and, um, all of that too. So it just, as far as non-lifestyle changes, there's not really a lot that I can work with, with that. So I can't even really speak on that because a lot of it's yeah. on the patient. They're going to do what they're going to do. So sometimes it's really hard to deal with that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, awesome. Any other concluding thoughts and we'll give out people where they can find you. Um, I mean, just, you know, get your colonoscopy, 
be healthy, you know, do some sort of exercise that can, you, you can change a lot of medical problems. And I feel, you know, diabetes is a complete lifestyle disease. I mean, yes, some people are plagued with genetics and, but more often than not, it's just, you know, lack of education on diet and exercise. Um, just try to be as healthy as you can. If you don't like going to doctors, well, then, uh, <laughs> be a better human for yourself. That way you can uh, avoid seeing people like me, maybe, you know? Um, but, uh, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm out here to help people if they want to be helped, you know, and, um, I just, you know, love doing this kind of stuff. So that's awesome. And I think you also yeah. highlighted how much of an effect exercise has. And I know that seems like a, like, duh, like kind of a statement, but I mean, I went to school to be an exercise physiologist and it, like every day I continue to be like just massively impressed about the effects exercise has on almost everything in the body. Oh yeah. And this is an area that is like incredibly like understudied, right? Because no one's really paying for a lot of these studies. Right. So it's an area that we don't have a lot of data. <clears throat> almost all the data we have so far shows that it's beneficial to literally almost every organ system and cell in your body, which just continues to like fascinate me. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, between the, you know, fasting for like autophagy and just getting out and walking, you know, some people they equate, well, I can't run, you know, a marathon. Yeah, so I try. It's like, well, yeah. just go walk. <laughs> I mean, I'm all about simple, you know, you don't think you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to get any memberships, just put on your shoes, go out and walk for 15 minutes and come back in 15 minutes three times a week, start with that. And then things get easier. Just getting started, you know, as you talk in your different classes and courses that you offer, you know, just get going and do something It's better than nothing. And, uh, cause some people just equate, they got to go, you know, do CrossFit or go do, you know, heavy weightlifting, which I'm a huge proponent for resistance training has been shown to be beneficial more than anything else. But if you don't want to do that, get up and walk or just do, you know, chair squats, go home and stand up out of your yeah. chair 10 times, holding a can of soup or something, or it's, it's so easy to do. Just nobody wants to take the time to do it. So. Yeah. And that's the benefit too, of if you are untrained and you're listening to this and you're not doing a lot of formal exercise, the, the benefit you're going to see from like zero to like one, like one day a week is massive, right? Just doing Absolutely. something, you're going to see so much of a benefit. Like if we look at the amount of exercise it takes to slightly lower blood pressure, it's not that much exercise, right? And these are all untrained people. Like you can kind of be an idiot and go to the gym and get better for the first several months. Right. So I think that's actually something that my profession has done a very poor job of explaining to people because it's still, Oh, you got to walk, you know, 10,000 steps a day or you're a slug. And people are like, I can't do 10,000. I'm not even doing anything. Right? It's like, if you did 5,000, you would see a huge benefit from the 2000 you're doing right now. Yeah. So I think we do a poor job of, kind of overselling the high end and underselling just do something and you're going to be better and just start there like move where you can and then get a little bit better over time so that's that's my plug <laughs> for sure oh yeah you know and it's so hard to get it's hard to get started but once you get going you Definitely. feel better you know i know when i have an exercise for about two or three days i'm just irritable and whatever and it's like go to the gym you know i just got to go out and run or go lift or something and i feel so much better and you know your cognition is better you just have all these health benefits that you don't think about that just just do something you know and just do something you like you know if you hate running don't run you know go ride your yeah. bike go swimming there is an aerobic exercise you can do that i don't think you hate every single thing just find something that you enjoy and then do that you know um it's not just going out to train for a half marathon or whatever just do get up and walk go yeah whatever you know do recreation like go do brazilian jiu-jitsu do tennis yeah. do 
something that your brain has to think about. Obviously, I'd be biased. Go learn to kiteboard, surf, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but get movement, do something you enjoy, get some brain function. You know, that's a easier starting point than even formal exercise for a lot of people. So absolutely. Yeah. And where can people find more about you? I know you've got some info. You've got a super cool podcast if people want more of the intersection of fitness and medical stuff. Yeah. So I started a medical fitness podcast probably about, I don't know, three months ago now. It's called The Morrissey Movement. Um, so you can look at it on all the main podcast players. I'm on Apple, Google, Spotify. And how do you spell that for people who are bad spellers like me? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So it's T-H-E and then M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y and then movement, M-O-V-E-M-E-N-T. So um, that's my podcast and you can just Google it. And I, I use Captivate for my podcast hosting. So I can take you to that website and you can listen to it off of there or you can go. I actually put them on YouTube also. Um, nice. I have a YouTube channel. I, there's no video. I've just been just making audio for now, but probably someday I'll do some video stuff, but um, it's fairly easy to find. And then the same email address, the, the Morrissey movement at gmail.com. You know, I'd be happy to take any, you know, either ideas for topics to talk about. And my target audience is pretty much general population. I don't target to, you know, medical professionals or, you know, fitness, you know, high-end people. I just general public. And I usually pick one thing in medicine and one thing in fitness and try to tie them together. And a lot of my, my uh, content comes from just questions I've been asked as a physician over the years, like, you know, what's a colonoscopy? What's it like to get your gallbladder out? And so I just go through simple things. I don't use a lot of big medical jargon. I just try to make it simple to understand and simple, short to the point. Sometimes I ramble, but not a whole lot, but uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, talk with anybody or do whatever. I, I love this stuff. So hit me up. I'd be happy to help. So. Yeah. And I'll give a plug for the podcast too. I think if someone's awesome. listening to this and they're a coach or a trainer, uh, most of the time you don't really get much medical training, but you're going to have clients that will ask you medical questions. And of course, yes, yeah, send them back to their doc, of course. But I think if you can provide any background or character, or that's kind of also why having you on this podcast, I think it'll be helpful. Then go listen to your podcast in more kind of plain speak and have more things they can tell their client about, you know, colonoscopies or even BMI or other topics. Right. Um, I think that's an easy way for them to just get a little bit more educated on those things so that when those questions come up, they can give them a little bit more context. And hopefully then the client is more likely to actually follow up with their own physician and and do something then. So absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. I really you appreciate bet. it. This was thank super you. interesting. No, it's been a blast. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and this episode with Dr. Chris Morrissey. I uh, really encourage you to check out his podcast. I think it's a very cool intersection of uh, medical and uh, fitness. And I think it'll answer kind of a lot of, you know, just questions people have. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people I know don't even have a, a general physician right now, or if they do, trying to get a hold of him or her is very uh, difficult. So trying to educate yourself as best that you can. Again, not looking to substitute advice from your doctor, but I think everyone should be as educated to their best ability on all matters, health, and even basic exercise, performance, and nutrition. So that's why I wanted to have Dr. Chris on the show to talk about those uh, three common procedures. I guarantee they're either going to apply to you or to someone that you love. So feel free to forward this podcast to them. Make sure to check out his stuff. As always, we love any type of review you want to leave. It just takes a couple seconds. Really appreciate it. 
and subscriptions also uh, help bump up the podcast in all the ratings. This one is brought to you by physiologicflexibility.com. Um, go there for a complete system on how to increase your ability to recover faster, increase your longevity, and just be much harder to kill. Everything from cold water immersion to sauna to breathing techniques to high-intensity exercise training or HIT, uh, ketones, glucose, uh, the whole nine yards. And we go through the big picture to understand the complex concepts of it. Then we break down a lot of the research, and then I show you how to specifically apply it with five action items per area. So there's four main interventions, each have two sides, so that's eight areas, and there's five interventions per area, so that's 40 different action items you can pick from. Again, not expecting you or your clients to do all of them, but it's just giving you options in a system so that you can match the correct action item for where yourself or your clients are at. So go to physiologicflexibility.com. Again, big thanks to Dr. Chris Morrissey for being on the podcast. We will see you all next week. What's wrong with you? Uh, It's either this show or indigestion. I hope it's indigestion. Why? It'll get better in a little while.